Informant podcasts should not be interpreted as legal advice and are intended for general information purposes only. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Burr Informant's podcast series, where we talk about developments in labor and employment issues, and we try to offer timely and practical advice for our clients and our friends. We're glad you decided to tune in with us this morning, and we hope that we can provide some helpful information, some practical guidance um, that you can consider as you navigate your workforce in 2021 and and through all of the surprises and challenges it's sure to bring if recent history is any indication at all. My name is Brian Smithini, and I am the chair of our labor and employment practice group here at Burr Informant. My office is in Birmingham, but I manage our team throughout Burr Informant's footprint as it works on issues that affect employers around the country, like labor campaigns and collective bargaining, class and collective action litigation, advice and counseling, and and all kinds of management side defense for labor and employment issues that that our clients face. For those of you that are new to Burr Informant, we are a 100-year-old full-service law firm with 360 attorneys in eight states and 19 offices throughout the Southeast. And we have one of the most experienced and largest labor and employment teams at any full service firm in the region. Today, I am joined by my colleague, Nafila Helu. Nafila and I work together often, but Nafila is actually housed in our Atlanta office, though she's been in Delaware in recent months and joins us from there today. So Nafila, tell our listeners a little bit about your practice. Yeah, absolutely. So I have always been on the management side of defense things since I started practicing um, about six years ago. I started my labor and employment journey doing more traditional labor work, stuff that spanned the lifespan of the entire employer union relationship from a union campaign and election, or in some instances, a card check neutrality agreement, uh, getting into the collective bargaining negotiation process working through how to manage an employer site that has a union relationship existing, and eventually getting to potentially a decert petition. I worked on the entire side of traditional labor work. I did that primarily until I joined Burr in 2018. At Burr, I have continued to do a little bit of labor work, but have really done a lot of the traditional employment side of things. Your typical ADA cases, your Title VII discrimination, everyday advice work. I have the privilege of working with a lot of clients who will shoot me an email or give me a call in their day-to-day operations as questions pop up or different things. Last year, obviously, we had a lot of COVID stuff that went around in advice and did a lot of that traditional stuff. So I've been pretty lucky that I've been able to run the gamut of both your traditional labor work and your employment work and getting to work with our clients in terms of just kind of going through the day-to-day operations of both of those things, as well as when we have litigation that stems from those things, getting into the litigation side and uh, helping defend them in that context as well. So we are lucky to have Nathalie today with her experience working on a lot of the issues that we're going to be discussing this morning. And today's topic is really a check-in for our listeners. A couple of months ago, um, as President Biden prepared for his inauguration, I talked with Ron Flowers to get some ideas about what we could expect from a Biden administration. Some of those expectations that we had were proven inaccurate. Some deviated a little bit from our predictions, as a lot of political things will seem to do. But recently, Nafila wrote an article that was published in various places, but most notably as an alert that we sent out to our clients and posted on Burr's website and social media platforms. 
And that article that Nathala wrote took a wide view of what we've seen from President Biden as he's arrived at about the halfway point in his 100-day agenda. So I asked Nathala to join me today to expound on her article and, and to provide the listeners with some additional insight into what she wrote about. So this podcast is a companion to that article. If you haven't seen it, please visit our website or contact Nafila or me to get a copy. But in the meantime, let's talk about where we are on the many progressive agenda items that President Biden has either proposed or has promised to, to propose and how they differ from what we've seen over the past four years. So Nafila, the most recent development that I've seen has been Biden's DOL's decision to revise President Trump's joint employer definition and then to postpone implementation of the independent contractor standards that had been developed during the latter stages of the Trump administration. And, and so first, Nathalie, what what's the difference between the joint employer and the independent contractor standards? And, and why does it even matter? Starting from a really high level, the joint employer rules are evaluating the actions of the employer, while the independent contractor standards are looking at the actions of the employee. How we evaluate the independent contractor relationship is often referred to as the economic realities test, and it focuses on factors that relate to the worker's economic dependence on the company. What the new rule does is to specifically state that when evaluating whether an individual is an independent contractor or an employee, the issue of economic dependence really isn't telling of whether or not that is an independent contractor relationship. But to answer why it matters, if a company uses an independent contractor model or supplements their workforce with independent contractors, then this final rule is really going to have an impact. It would reclassify your previously independent contractors as employees. And this could mean things like expanded benefits of health insurance or other employee benefits. It also means that multiple employers could share the same employee, and that could have an impact on potential litigation. We'll talk more about it later, but one of the clearest examples is in the franchisee-franchisor model, where we could have the brand and the franchise being employees. We could also see multiple units sharing employees. So that's one of the biggest issues that we're going to face with this potential legislation. Okay, cool. So in your article, you explain that the ideal method Biden's hoping to use is, is the PRO Act, the legislation called the PRO Act. And that that is the most likely way, the most ideal way for President Biden to implement these two new approaches. What is the PRO Act and, and where are we on it? The PRO Act is how we refer to the Protecting the Right to Organize Act of 2021. As I mentioned in the article, a vital part of President Biden's campaign promise was to be the strongest labor president we've ever seen. And that's a quote from him. Essentially, the PRO Act is a step he's taking towards living up to that promise. If the PRO Act passes, it would be the most significant labor law reform we've seen in the United States since private sector employees were first given the right to unionize in the World War II era. In other words, we would be facing the biggest cha changes to labor law since the U.S. developed the National Labor Relations Board. So where it stands now, it's currently slated to be brought to the House floor for a vote this week. Whether it will pass Congress remains a question. Democrats currently have control of both houses, but in 2009, a Democrat-controlled control, Congress 
fell short in a similar attempt at a labor law reform by failing to pass the Employee Free Choice Act. More recently, under the Trump administration, the PRO Act of 2019 passed the House, but it failed in the then Republican-held Senate. And while this tends to be an issue that leans Democratic, there are Democratic Congress people who are not in support of this move. We're also seeing strong lobbying efforts for and against the legislation. So it's hard to predict what will happen, but several people think that this will pass, at least in some extent. Yeah, and Ron and I actually talked about that in our most recent podcast. And, you know, my instinct is that it probably won't pass as currently constructed, but a lot of the things that are in the PRO Act are likely to make it through. And so let's assume, Nafla, that the PRO Act doesn't pass completely in its current form. One of the things that's been some pushback about is the independent contractor standards and the joint employer rules. If those are excluded from the PRO Act in its final version, are there any other options that are available to President Biden's team to get either of these rules into effect or or maybe you know to expand their usage with the federal agencies? Are there some options that he has available to him? Absolutely. We're already seeing changes to leadership. Uh, that Biden has implemented that would naturally trickle down. President Biden recently fired the NLRB's general counsel and appointed his own pick to the role. He did the same thing in the EEOC. It's still early. We're about 50 days in. So what we're seeing now may be only the beginning of those attempts. Right. And so, you know, that's actually one of the things, you know, just to demonstrate that the prediction game can get you into trouble. Ron and I both predicted that President Biden wouldn't Fire the NLRB general counsel and that it would be a period of time for employers to kind of get used to some of these changes with the existing leadership. But that didn't happen. And, and we have a new NLRB general counsel. We will have a new EEOC general counsel. And some of those things are going to make the changes that we discussed move a little bit more quickly. So because of that, Nafalet, I mean, let's talk about this. It seems to me that the independent contractor standards are the ones probably most impact our clients on a day-to-day basis. Specifically, how would those standards change under Biden's proposal? I agree. I think that the independent contractor standards are going to have a broad impact on many of our clients. Some opinion articles floating around on the internet are going so far as to say that the PRO Act is eliminating most forms of independent contracting, and it's causing these folks to reclassify as employees. This is essentially the national version of what we saw in California, but it goes much deeper than Grubhub or Uber drivers, which a lot of the news followed when this hit California. The new standard is called the ABC test, and it's something that's familiar to employers in states like California or Connecticut or Massachusetts. For the rest of us, the ABC test requires workers to fulfill three criteria in order to maintain their independent contractor status. A absence of control. This essentially means that the worker is not under the direct control of the client. That's things like setting their schedule, controlling the manner or means of how they do their work. B is the business of the worker. And I frankly think that this is the most impactful and hardest part of the ABC test. This is essentially saying that it requires the worker to perform work that is outside the course of the employer's usual business. So for example, an IT worker who comes to set up a new network for a restaurant would pass, but delivery drivers for Grubhub, for example, would fail. The C 
is customarily engaged. The contractor is usually engaged in an independently established occupation or trade that is the same as the nature of the work that the independent contractor is performing. This essentially limits independent contracting to professionals, such as people who have licenses. For example, a lawyer or a doctor who consults to read test results would pass this part of a test. Although taken in its whole, they probably fail the B part because who would need to hire a doctor to read test results other than a company in the business of conducting medical tests? And that kind of shows you how all of these play together and it makes it a really high standard to maintain this independent contractor relationship. So that means that employees who tend to provide a variety of unlicensed services even if they're working for a bunch of different companies, journalists or freelance writers, for example, they're going to be essentially employees. And I will add one other thing. The test also says that it doesn't really matter even if the independent contractor is working for a variety of clients. They could be working for you, your largest competitor, et cetera, and so forth and they're still going to be deemed an employee under this new ABC test. Right, and so, you know, the, the economic realities test that we operated on for a long time, and I guess technically still do, was already a little bit shaky for a lot of employers. And, and we, you know, often would advise our clients that, you know, this is too close a call to designate this person as a contractor because of some of the implications that it has. Part B of the ABC test effectively means that it's going, going to be really difficult to have traditional standard contractors that are working in the same line of business that you're working in as a as an employer. And you know, Nafla, has that is is that what you're seeing as you as you evaluate this ABC test? That is just going to be really hard for any employer to designate someone as a contractor who is not somebody like a plumber that's come in to do work on a, on a restaurant or, you know, something along those lines. Absolutely. A lot of clients and employers use independent contractors because they have specific needs that they need. And most of the time, those needs fit within the realm of business they do. Otherwise, you know, they're really not calling in those folks. So like you said, absent a plumber or an IT person who's coming in kind of like a hired service as you would have Comcast or, you know, AT&T come in and set up your network, you're really looking at essentially developing an employee relationship with those folks. And that could be problematic because for several reasons, you're not going through the typical employee lifespan with the onboarding. It's, it's an additional cost to that as well. You know, at that point, we're having to evaluate, are we going to offer benefits to these folks? You know, how is this relationship that really was intended to be an independent contractor going to change how we do business with this person? And how's it going to affect our broader employee base? It's all things that employers now would need to consider, you know, if they were leaning towards that independent contractor model, or if they were using independent contractors to kind of substitute or fill in for areas that you know, they had a current need, but may not have a need for in a couple months or years. Yeah. So I think the takeaway from what I'm hearing from you, Nafila, is our employers need to stay awake on this issue because as it changes and develops, it's going to be much more likely if you use independent contractors to any significant extent that we're going to have to transition those employees to employees and figure out some solutions for, you know, how, how to make that happen. 
So sliding into um, the, the next topic that we've already discussed a little bit, the joint employer definition is, is really more of a big picture impact. What, what, what impact does that have in the labor contact, context and for our franchisor or franchisee clients and, and folks that work in that industry? It essentially just lowers the bar on proving joint employer. So in the labor context, it really means that more people are eligible to be included in the bargaining unit. Or, you know, in other words, for folks who aren't as familiar with the labor world, that's the group of workers who are voting whether or not they want union representation. And then once they have that vote, if it's successful, those would be the folks who are subject to the collective bargaining agreement. In the franchisor franchisee setting, this impact seems almost unthinkable from the franchisees and franchisors that I've spoken to. There are more than 800,000 franchisee business, businesses out there. The franchisee and his workers essentially may become employees of the franchisor. So in other words, if you operate a franchised business, say a Pizza Hut or a UPS store, you may become an employee of Pizza Hut or UPS. And that impact could also extend down into your workforce with those folks becoming UPS or Pizza Hut employees. Now, going back to the labor context, when we have that broader reach of employees, labor unions could potentially come in and unionize multiple locations of the same brand, even if they aren't technically owned or operated by the same franchisor. Additionally, Currently, employers, such as franchisors, are only liable for the acts of their franchisees or contractors if they directly control the terms and conditions of employment of those employees. What the PRO Act would do would restore the 2015 Browning-Ferris decision that subjected employers to joint employer liability, even if the two entities did not control the terms and conditions. Instead, they were exercising this kind of indirect control even if it was only in terms of a contract, such as between the brand and the franchisee. In light of these, this greatly increased damages and it creates extended exposure for folks who are operating in a franchisee franchisor model. You're not only concerned with what's happening in your unit, but potentially with units across town, across the country, and at the brand's national level. So to me, with the joint employer rules that have, as the definition has changed, you know, there's a couple of takeaways, I think. One is forget about temporary employee employees anymore. You're definitely going to be deemed the joint employer over those employees. And then with respect to these franchise or franchisee relationships with union organizing, our clients just need to be more alert that there's a possibility, if not a likelihood, that if we have that kind of relationship, we will be deemed to employ these people for purposes of the National Labor Relations Act and Title VII and other employment discrimination laws, things like that. And, you know, again, it's one of those things that the PRO Act has gone much farther than really anything that we've seen before. And it's, you know, an area where employers need to stay vigilant. Nafla, you had mentioned in your article, too, um, some talk about the minimum wage. And I know that that's been a hot button talking point for both sides of the political fence for a long time. As employers, how close do you think we are to an increased minimum wage? And and do you think it's likely to go all the way to $15 per hour? I think we're close to an increased minimum wage. And I think that there's 
And I think it's something that every employer should prepare for, but I don't think that we'll see a federal minimum wage of $15 an hour during the Biden administration. I mean, that's a bold statement, obviously. I don't have a crystal ball as much as I wish I did, but there have been too many Democratic Congress people who have voiced opposition to this move, and I just don't really see it happening. So, Nathalie, when you talk about the the state and local municipalities and the way that they have increased the minimum wage on their own, is, is it really more of a grassroots kind of move that you see increasing the, the minimum wage? Is, is really this more just a talking point from the Biden administration with no real expectation that the minimum wage at the federal level is likely to increase in the short term to more than double what it what it already is? I think they're trying. There are two bills currently pending in Congress that would raise the minimum wage. You know, plus they did attempt to tie it into the stimulus bill that recently passed. So there are a lot of attempts to create a new federal minimum wage. When the attempt to tie it to the stimulus bill failed, a few Democratic senators decided that one potential route could be to penalize employers who pay lower wages with a tax on those employers. This stalled for a moment, but for the politicians who feel strongly that our nation needs a higher minimum wage, they're willing to get creative for it. For that reason, and going back to much of what I already mentioned, I do think the majority of employers will see some kind of minimum wage increase over the next four years, whether it be driven by local politics or state politics. And unless we're talking about work sites in those states like California and New York, I don't think we're talking about a huge hike. But I think we will see a bit of a raise. I also think that at a time when this conversation is really taking hold, if you're an employer in certain industries, it may almost be a necessity to obtain and retain the talent you really want. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, ultimately, what this probably comes down to is mar- the market driving the minimum wage increase. And, you know, as, as the discussions become more and more relevant and people talk about it more and more, um, different different municipalities, different states have these minimum wages that are significantly higher. You know, I anticipate that the market's going to drive this as much as anything. So for most of our clients, if you're not already at $15 an hour, hour for your entry-level employees, you probably need to think about what's it going to take to get us there. You know, how realistic is it? What are we going to have to do when the realistic minimum wage for our business begins to climb? So, you know, again, that's probably the best takeaway from what you just said, I think, for our clients is either way, it's it's time to start getting prepared. Another item, Nathala, in the PRO Act that you mentioned in your article, but that hasn't gotten as much attention that I've seen, um, but it seems to me to be one of the biggest issues out there for employers is that the act would invalidate mandatory arbitration agreements in the employment relationship. And to a lot of our clients and friends that are listening, this is a huge issue. You, you mentioned it, as I said in your article, that the PRO Act would do this and the FAIR Act would do the same thing. So, you know, to, just to start with, Nathala, why are these arbitration agreements so important to employers? Yeah, France, I think we could have a completely separate podcast on why arbitration agreements are important to employers. I think, you know, there's a lot of reason that employers lean towards implementing arbitration agreements in their employee-employer relationship. Um, Arbitration agreements are often implemented, you know, as a means to obtain a quicker resolution to disputes, especially in circumstances like we're facing now when courts are so backlogged. Um, It also has the benefit of not being a public proceeding like we would have in a court. 
Um, so for example, if you're facing something that could generate some bad publicity, it's a little bit easier to keep it out of the court of public opinion in the media. Uh, some feel like it's a cheaper process. You know, the jury's kind of out on that, uh, to use a bad example with a jury and a non-jury area. The biggest impact it has is on the cost of potential litigation. Right. And, you know, what we do a lot of, NAFLA, and, and, and you know, the cases we've worked on together have included class and collective claims. So, you know, collective action under the Fair Labor Standards Act, class action, employment, uh, discrimination lawsuits, arbitration agreements that include waivers have historically been upheld. And in fact, the Supreme Court recently affirmed their validity. And so those have been a tool that employers have used to avoid the expensive, you know, mass litigation that we've seen in recent years has become more and more popular. For a lot of employers, that's been the way they've neutralized those issues and have dealt with these claims on an individual basis. So to the extent that this PRO Act or anything uh, exists to invalidate mandatory arbitration agreements, it seems like that could have a pretty large impact. What do you think that it might do to class and collective action litigation if this act invalidates mandatory arbitration agreements in the employment relationship? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, one of the most attractive benefits to employers is the class and collective action waiver. In its simplest terms, that means that employees agree that they have to individually arbitrate their claims, and it eliminates the potential for class and collective actions. Uh, this can save employers a lot of money, particularly when it comes to wage and hour claims. These types of claims are of particular interest to plaintiff's attorneys because they translate into big awards. As you mentioned, we've personally seen these class and collective action waivers be a difference between a few settlements and a multi-million dollar national settlement. So, Nafla, I think that's exactly right. And you mentioned that you know, we could do an entire podcast on this issue. Well, let me tell you, we probably will. Um, this is, to me, one of the more significant issues that I see that is kind of under the radar right now. You know, over the years, what we've seen is these arbitration agreements that include class and collective action waivers have been the difference, you know, as you mentioned, between incredibly expensive lawsuits and litigations that, you know, have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars versus, you know, individual settlements when appropriate to resolve disputes. And it's a thing that we're going to really have to pay more attention to if the PRO Act passes. So in your article, Nathala, we we have not really talked about yet the fact that the stimulus re relief package passed just this past week. What does this mean for employers and employees beyond, you know, just a check to individuals who qualify? Yeah, and I'm going to back up just a little bit because, you know, the Senate did pass a relief bill and it was an honest single party line. And not to talk about politics, but I think it's telling because what we're trying to do here is predict what we'll see from the Biden administration, especially in terms of, you know, a federal government change. But we need to keep in mind that midterm elections could potentially put a stop to any real momentum that they have going. There are 34 Senate seats that go up for re-election in 2022, so we could see a swing of power or, on the other hand, the solidification of it. But back to the matter at hand and what we have in the stimulus bill— Part of the stimulus bill has some money directed towards single and multi-employer pension funds. Um, I'll leave that particular topic for a benefits discussion. 
But otherwise, the House stimulus bill provided, you know, extra unemployment benefits to the tune of $400 a week. Some conservative Democrats stated that they were concerned about the cost, as well as the potential that it might discourage some people from returning to work. So as a result, the Senate version of that bill authorized only $300 in weekly benefits. The benefits will be available through September 6, 2021. And the Senate bill also provides a 100% subsidy for COBRA premiums through the end of September. So this is more generous than the previous House bill, which only paid 85% of those premiums. Most folks who have read the House and the Senate versions of these bill think that the Senate bill will be the one that we really see implemented. So any other developments that you've seen related to stimulus or you know, the PPP or the FFCRA that we all spent so much time on in 2020. You mentioned a couple of things in your article about the PPP that I thought were interesting. What else is out there that employers need to know about? Yeah, in my article, I stated that in late February, the Biden administration announced sweeping changes to the Paycheck Protection Program, what we call the PPP. And essentially what they did was intend to redirect its benefits to America's smallest employers. So they shut out employers with more than 20 employees. And it's important to keep in mind, though, that the PPP expires at the end of this month, March 2021, and the Biden administration has made no comment on whether it will seek to extend the program. Although some people think that it will, it's really kind of up in the air right now. As far as the Federal Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which is a tongue twister that even after a year of talking about it still gets me a little bit. Um, it originally expired on December 31st, 2020, so last year, and that essentially terminated covered employers' obligations to provide the benefits that we talked about all last year. Shortly before the end of the year, though, Congress extended the tax credit for employers who voluntarily continued to provide such paid leave through the end of this month. So with that, we were starting to see the expiration of this voluntary FFCRA program at the end of this month. However, they have recently extended those tax credits through September 2021. They've also provided that the tax credits are available for paid sick leave and paid family leave for additional reasons. And just to name a few, for example, if the employee is obtaining the vaccine, if the employee is recovering from an injury, disability, illness, or condition related to the vaccine. You know, in the media right now, the vaccine is, is really kind of a hot button topic. And a lot of people are talking about how the second dose knocks you out. And there was a lot of concerns for employees, employers saying, well, can we, you know, mandate that an employee obtain the vaccine? And if we do, can we phase it so that when our employees are eligible for the vaccine, are we able to say, hey, guys, don't all get it at once because we don't want you all out. We can't lose an entire department if you're you know, suffering from the effects of this second dose. Uh, so what essentially this FFCRA has done is kind of cleared that up to some extent and said, hey, these folks are eligible for the FFCRA benefits if they do suffer from you know, second dose symptoms. Um, it also adds a non-discrimination rule that provides that no tax credit is available if the employer, in determining availability for the paid leave, discriminates against highly compensated employees, full-time employees, or you know other things on the basis of tenure of the employer, a bunch of different aspects. 
it's essentially just, you know, seems to be designed to compel the employer to make the decision to provide this voluntary leave in kind of a uni uniform matter. And so those are the things that we're seeing with the FFCRA. But essentially, I think the biggest thing is that it's extended these potential benefits for the employers who opt into the program uh, through the end of September. Yeah, and I think that's a critical point that you're making, and it's one probably we should emphasize, and that is that you know the FFCRA has expired, and the mandatory portion of the of the law is is no longer applicable. You don't have to provide paid leave to your employees pursuant to the FFCRA, but you can and take advantage of these tax credits now through the end of September. And I think what's most interesting to me about that is, you know, just what it indicates about where we're headed, you know, for employers think about the next few years, once paid sick leave is on the table, once it has become an expectation and a, and a standard in the American workforce, you know, I expect that to continue and there to be more effort to implement paid sick leave provisions in other areas. So while this may all go away, you know, under the FFCRA specifically, I would expect that what it's going to do is open the door to paid sick leave in other parts of federal legislation and, and, and really probably expand most employers' expectations for what kind of paid sick leave they have to provide to their employees. So Nathalie, we, we've talked a little bit about what the PRO Act would do with unionized workforces and the opportunity for unions to organize workforces. We know not all our listeners have unionized workforces, but I think everyone agrees that the PRO Act is going to make it substantially easier to organize a group of employees. Even for our non-unionized workforces, what are some things every employer should know about the PRO Act and what it might mean in industries that have not traditionally been as union heavy, like, for example, manufacturing or skilled labor? Yeah, absolutely. I think, France, this is another area that we could have an entirely different podcast on. And, you know, to plug this in, Burr will have a morning show episode about the PRO Act. Um, as an initial point, the PRO Act makes it infinitely easier for labor unions to come into workforces that don't have the typical labor relationship. Um, in my early years, my labor law work always seemed to be in the states that you would expect it, Michigan, California, New York. Uh, the workforces in places like Detroit have these long storied histories with labor unions. And I think that that always helped benefit the labor union, whereas in places like Georgia or Alabama, we don't have that same history. So being a part of a labor union isn't as familiar to these workforces. And it really kind of, I think, played to the benefit of the employer. So what we're seeing is essentially making it a lot easier for the union to come in in areas where that labor union relationship uh, may not be as known. The PRO Act does give the union a clear advantage. First, it eliminates the right to work state laws that we see in more than half the states. Those are the laws that make it illegal for employers to mandate the payment of union dues as a condition of employment. Additionally, employers have the right to permanently replace employees who go out on strike in support of their union. So during a union strike situation, whether it be during a collective bargaining negotiation or at some other point, we could previously say, hey, we've got to replace these folks in order to keep our operations up and running. But we're losing that. 
and the loss of the right to permanently replace employees is anticipated to give unions a serious advantage in those collective bargaining negotiations. So when they don't like the terms or they don't think that the employer is coming to the table, they can have these walkouts. It would also legalize secondary strikes and boycotts. And this is something that's really interesting to me because essentially what this means is that they can have these neutral employers, you know, such as your vendors or your suppliers or neighboring businesses who have nothing to do with your particular labor dispute, they can have pickets and they can boycott. And that would essentially kind of have a trickle down effect on your operations. So in other words, under the PRO Act, even if your employees did choose to not be represented by a union, you can find your business subject to strikes and boycotts without any way to protect your business. The NLRA has also recognized that only employees, as opposed to, for example, managers, supervisors, or independent contractors, have the right to form, join, or you know, interact with these particular unions. Therefore, by changing, kind of going back to our, where we started this conversation and changing the definition of an independent contractor, uh, we're seeing kind of the expansion of who can participate in this exercise. Uh, they're also kind of changing the definition of supervisor. Unions have really for a long time pushed for legislation that would expand the definition of employee and limit the definition of supervisor. One of the ways that employers would often kind of limit the bargaining unit was to say, hey, these folks are, you know, supervisors, even if they were, you know, frontline supervisors. And they were able to kind of create a smaller bargaining unit for that. But essentially under this act, we're losing that ability. It also brings back the Obama era quickie election procedures that we saw, um, where the pre-election hearings were set for eight days after the union filed the recognition petition with the NLRB. Those 20 days, you know, is all that the employer would have to prepare for that hearing. The PRO Act does go further, though. It essentially removes the employer input in setting things like the parameters of the election, how we'll proceed, who's going to be in the bargaining unit. It grants the NLRB the discretion to allow unions to determine the key parameters, such as the dates, when are we holding the election, the method, will it be a mail-in versus an in-person vote, and where will we hold this election? Anyone who has done traditional labor work knows that negotiating the terms of the election is actually a very large part of what we do. And it's taking that advantage away from the employer. Another thing that I'll note is that in first contract situations, there's something called an interest arbitration model. And this is something where when the two parties, the employer and the union, would kind of get to an impasse, essentially the issue would go to an arbitrator who would get to decide. So we're seeing that here. For the first time, federal employees, these NLRB judges, are getting to decide what terms will be imposed on the employment of private workplaces, regardless of how the business can meet its needs. So in other words, just to rephrase that, you know, when we came to the table as an employer, we were able to say, based on our business realities, these are, this is what we can and cannot do in terms of putting forth a collective bargaining agreement. And the union, to some extent, would have to, you know, recognize that reality. By taking this out of that hand and putting it in the hands of that ALJ at the NLRB level, they're really kind of imposing new terms and conditions of employment on, you know, these private workplaces. And the last thing I'll mention is that the PRO Act provides that if the union does lose the election, the NLRB can essentially set aside the results of the election 
hold a recount and certify the union as a representative just based on these union authorization cards that were submitted to the union at any point during the past year. So essentially saying, hey, we didn't like the results of that election. Let's go ahead and just count the union authorization cards and use that to make the decision. So, Nathalie, that's a lot. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that President Biden had expressed, he's announced that he intends to be the most aggressive labor president ever. And, you know, everything that you just went through would prove that. Now, you know, I think we both agree that a lot of these things you've just discussed in the PRO Act are unlikely to make it through much like $15 an hour minimum wage. But but what it does is it highlights and emphasizes what the agenda is and what the push is for. So given all of that, the people who are in charge of, of dealing with these issues, what do they need to do to prepare now? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Even if this legislation doesn't pass, I think what we're doing is we're having a conversation where it's getting put into the minds of employees that these are things that could happen in their workforce. So it's kind of like, you know, once it's heard, maybe it starts the conversation. Whether or not, you know, these are things that are passed, which to some extent, I agree with you, Brands, I don't think we're going to see all of this. If any of this is new or you think that this could pose a threat to your workforce, I think that it's time to kind of evaluate what that threat would be, get a good understanding of what could change, and, you know, talk to your folks at Burr, talk to us, have an understanding of, hey, if the quickie election passes, for example, are we prepared to respond in the 20-day timeframe? They say, you know, an ounce of prevention. So kind of being in front of these things is really going to help if this does pass, and even if it doesn't, you know, there's no harm in being an overprepared employer. Along those same lines, same question in a broader sense related to the article that you wrote. What do you recommend to our listeners as affirmative steps that they can take, given all these goals and actions the Biden administration has announced? Yeah, I think, you know, similarly to what we just said, you know, look at your current operations, identify areas that would be affected by the things that we've talked about. Do you use arbitration agreements? Do we need to look at other ways? of switching that arbitration agreement relationship? Do we have any positions where the wages may become an issue? If we've got a wage scale where our entry-level folks are starting at that level below $15 or below a level that we think we're comfortable with, do we need to start getting out in front of these issues and go ahead and take proactive measures while we're at the beginning of a year um, redoing our budgets, things like that, rather than having this legislation come down and kind of we're responding afterwards? So I think, like I said, you know, prevention is great. You know, consider what proactive measures we can take as employers to get out in front of these changes. And at Burr, you know, we're ready to have those conversations and we're excited and we can, we're here to help you and kind of decide what do we need to take seriously based on our realities and how can we get in front of it? All right. Well, thanks, Nathala. I really appreciate you taking some time this morning to talk about your article and, and what has happened during the first half of the first 100 days of the Biden administration and the impact that that could have on our clients and friends. Thank everyone for participating this morning, for listening to the podcast. You know, please feel free to access the information that NAFLA has posted, published on our website and, and on our social media platforms and all of the information that is out there related to both this issue, the changes that are coming with the Biden administration and the ongoing challenges 
related to COVID and how we're managing things like the vaccine and leave policies. All of those issues are still out there. They still exist. And there's a lot of content on our platforms to access to help you manage those issues. But again, thank you for listening and we hope you have a great day.